good evening to those who don't know, I guess to everyone, but welcome those who don't know me. I've been around Res for a long time, so a bunch of, of you guys were my students back when you were in like middle school. So, so it, it's going to be loads of fun. Uh, I have, I, I love getting to share the word, and I get to share about something fun tonight. Uh, how many of you guys have ever been part of a choreograph, choreographed fight? Anyone ever choreograph a fight? Maybe it wasn't on stage, but just you and your friend choreographed a fight with something. Wow, so many boring people. <laughs> no, my, but my friends and I, we used to do all sorts of different random things. And I remember for, we did a junior high camp and we decided it was going to be Rome versus Egypt. So we divided camp up into two teams and then we got each team a leader. But it's way more fun if your leaders actually fight. And it's even more fun if they fight with actual weapons. So I should have brought it in. I have a, we bought a boar spear. So it's like a 10-foot spear that's meant to, um, in the boar, that we got. And then we made this Roman sword. And we got these two guys, uh, Justin Binish and Trace Antcliffe, who were the, these leaders. But if you're going to go at each other with these weapons that are legit, you, you need to know what they're going to do because you don't actually want to get hit. And so they're, they're choreographing these, and it was amazing because they were actually made of steel. And so when they come out with weapons, all the kids are like, yeah, yeah, it's going to be funny, and they're just thinking it's like props. And then as soon as he like swings the sword and blocks it with the last foot and a half of steel that's on the spear, and you hear the clang, everyone just goes, <gasps> But I got thinking about this. If I was to stick you in this, you would so want to know what are they going to do. Like, you would want to know, what is the choreographed move? Is he going to swing for my head or my feet first? Right? You're like, I want to know. Because if I, if, I, if I know what he's going to do, then I know when I'm supposed to jump, when I'm supposed to block, and I can stay safe. But if he just comes randomly charging at me, swinging and stabbing, there is a too high of a probability that I'm going to have a new hole in my body, right? Well, the Bible tells us that we have an enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And it actually lays out and shows us some of the ways that he will attack you. And so I want to look at one of the ways that I can promise Satan will attack you because I believe that if you know what attacks are coming, you are way more likely to overcome them. Is that fair? Yeah. All right. So if, if we look in our Bibles at Genesis chapter 3, we find when the first arrival of, of sin, the arrival of Satan and his first attack. And when he shows up, he attacks a couple of things. And then he makes a pattern of this. And so we can kind of get an idea of what he does. In Genesis 3, if you're totally unfamiliar with the Bible, God just made everything. And then he goes, all right, I got a rule for you. We're gonna, you're going to like live it large. I made a beautiful garden. I didn't make any clothes. There's lots of food. And you are going to have fun. But I have a rule. There is one tree. You can take care of everything, but from that tree, don't eat. Good? I'm like, yeah, sweet. Literally, you got everything 
with one rule, one prohibition. So he, he lays this out. Well, God made Adam and Eve, and they're there, and they're hanging out, and they're enjoying the garden. And the Bible doesn't say how long they enjoyed the garden. It doesn't say, and the first day they messed everything up. It doesn't say on the first anniversary of being in the garden, they screwed up. It just says that one day they were out for a walk. And Satan shows up in this tree as a snake. And it's like, yo, hey, Eve. That's kind of shocking. What would you do if a snake was like, yo, hey. And like, where's that spear? Um, so like, you're going to try to kill it. But you know, that, that's a really fun topic on why she wasn't freaked out. But we can get into that a different day. But so she starts this conversation with the devil. And he does two things really quick. First off, he goes, did God really say? And one of the first things that the devil attacks over and over and over is God's word. And then he goes on from there, and he, and he, and he goes in, um, in verse 5. He goes, oh, if you eat this, then you will be like God. And, and he he begins to hang this carrot of who you will become. Now, the, the funny part about this is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says that God made man and woman in his image. He made them. So he actually promised her what she already had. And she's like, what? I could be like God. It does look pretty good. And he begins to tempt her and he begins to attack her identity and goes, well, if you have this, then you will be. And, and I begin looking at this going, okay, so, so he lays out this, I'm going to attack God's word, I'm going to challenge your identity, and I'm going to challenge that God doesn't want the best for you. And he does these three things in this first temptation. And then if we flip in our Bibles into Matthew chapter 4, you see the first temptation recorded of Jesus. So if you're catching up, I guess as we end chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized. When he gets baptized, he comes out, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and God speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Like, sweet. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, or no, verse 3. Uh, the devil shows up. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So what did he attack? God's word and his identity. What did God just say? This is my beloved Son. What did Satan say? If you're really the Son, then this is what you got to do. And, and he sits here and he goes, and he, ta he takes on what God had just said about him. And then he goes through and goes, well, if, if you want to really be the son of God, you got to prove it. Show me. If you're really the son of God, then this is going to be easy. You can do this. And he tries to get him to put his identity in his ability to perform rather than in what God had said. And I begin looking at this. And going, okay, so this, is, this seems to be a pattern that Satan attacks God's word and he attacks our identity. 
Because if you don't know who you are, you will spend your life trying to achieve it, prove it, or you'll be lost and depressed because you don't think you have it. If you don't know who you are, you'll spend your life trying to achieve it, prove it, or lost and depressed. And, and I, I started thinking, going, well, how easy, how hard can it be to know who I am? Like, don't I have like a birth certificate that states it? Don't I have a mirror that shows it? But did you know that not all mirrors tell the truth? Can you put up a picture of that first one? <clears throat> not all mirrors tell the truth. Next one. I got like a really buff forearm <laughs> and a messed up head. Next one. That one was just so messed up. I was like, I just got to show it. Okay, next one. Not all reflections are accurate. And it's very, very important to understand that because we have this thing as humans that when you see something, you are prone to believe what you see, even if what you see isn't real. And one of the ways that this is commonly referred to is they say that your perception is your reality. I have a friend who's an illusionist, and he plays with this all the time. Because he can make you see something by controlling where you look that isn't real and it'll blow your mind. You sit there and he'll do stupid stuff like swallow a ring and then pull it out of his stomach or he'll make things disappear and then appear in your pocket or your hand or out of your ear. Just weird stuff. And you're like, what are you, how did you? But when he controls where I look, he controls what I see even if what I see isn't real. And it's this, this crazy thing and I, I started looking going, well, but would my eyes lie to me and, and I realized there's a story of a guy in the Bible named Gideon. Now, if you grew up in church your whole life, you've probably heard about Gideon before, at least a little bit. But for those who didn't, I will give you the short version of Gideon. Gideon is in the land of Israel when things are not good. They are being severely oppressed by a massive army of Midianites. And the Midianites would let them plant their crops work the land, and then as soon as they would harvest, the Midianites would come charging down, steal all the food, and leave. And so it was like, kind of like slavery, but not. It was like, oh, look, you're free, except I'm going to take all that you did. And if you were my slave, I'd, have, I'd be obligated to take care of you and make sure that you had enough of it to make it through the year. But because I am just an overly powerful thief who steals from you every time that you get anything, I have, no, oh, I have no concern for your well-being and whether or not you have enough to make it through the winter. So it was really not a good situation. And so he, he gets this harvest, and then he's like, you know what? I am going to hide my harvest. And so he goes, and he's threshing wheat, um, in a wine press, which I don't think anyone here has ever threshed wheat. Anyone threshed wheat? Okay. This is the worst possible location for threshing wheat. You want it to be like on a hill where there was a bit of a breeze that would come through. That would, so you'd like smash stuff and you'd toss it up and the, the little light flakes would float away and the nice heavy stuff that you wanted would fall to the ground. And he's doing this down below things where there wasn't much wind. It's like going, 
I'm going to go tanning in the basement. No, I don't have a tanning bed. I am just hoping that there's enough light coming through that window. If I lay on the floor and I move strategically, maybe I can get a tan. That's kind of the equivalent here because he's terrified. He's like, if I, if I take care of my stuff where I should, they're going to see it and they're going to come steal it. So he's hiding. And while he's hiding, an angel shows up and is like, hey, mighty man of valor. He's like, where? And he's like, you. And he's like, I'm not a mighty man of valor. And he's like, God's with you. And he's like, no, no, he's not. <laughs> Have you seen my circumstances? I am hiding in a wine press to thresh my wheat. Mighty man of valor. I am from the weakest family, from the weakest tribe. And of the weak family, I am the weakest. Like, for real. This is his boast. As he's in this conversation... This is Judges chapter 6, verse 12. Or no, sorry. Verse 15. And, and he goes through this whole thing. And long story short, the angel just goes, all right, well, God's going to use you. And he's like, but I'm a nobody. And he's like, that's okay. God will use you. And it's really strange that God didn't look at him and go, you're wrong. You're really somebody. God just goes, that's okay. I'll be with you. So whether or not you've got it doesn't matter anymore. And Gideon's like, oh, I don't know about this. And there's this like really cool dialogue back and forth with him. And, and then he steps out in faith and he, he ends up getting this, this army together. But they are severely outnumbered. He gets an army of like 30,000, but they're about to take on an army of over 120,000. Odds were not good. And God goes, mm, your army's too big. Tell them that who's ever afraid can go home. And two-thirds of his army walks away. That was not good. God, we were outnumbered. Now we are really outnumbered. And God looks again and goes, mm, your army's too big. He goes, ah, take them all down to the river. When they all take a drink, everybody who drinks like this, send them home. Everybody who drinks like this, you can keep them. Lo and behold, he's left with 300 men. I want to say it was 135,000 people they were going up against. Whatever the case was, it's 300 times 450 because they were outnumbered 450 to 1. Those are really bad odds. But God shows up and God moves. And if you want the whole story, Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. But... If you fast forward into this battle, he captures some of the bad guys. He captures some of the, the bad guy kings, and he shows up in Judges chapter 8, and he, and he goes up to him, and he, then he said to Zeba and Zelamuna, I hope that's not your name. Okay, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. What does that mean? That means they look like royalty. That means they look like leaders. That means they were big and they were strong. When they talk about King Saul looking like royalty, they said he was a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. But what did Gideon say about himself? I'm the weakest. 
I come from the weakest tribe. But when he goes and he gets a description, as you are, so were they. They all look like sons of kings. His response was, those were my brothers. So your mirror was lying to you. Because he started it out going, no, I'm the weakest and my family's the weakest. But everybody else looks and goes, dude, you are a leader. But that's not what he saw. At least not at that point in his life. But I guarantee you that from Judges chapter 6 to Judges chapter 8, he did not grow six inches and put on 50 pounds of meat. But what he saw changed. And it's this amazing thing that what I can see can be a lie. And it's a scary thing, and it can be a dangerous thing. When I was in high school, there was a girl who was struggling with anorexia. And it blew me away, because I didn't understand this yet. And she was, she was dying, because she was starving. She was to the point that her heart she, was in, she ended up in the hospital because her heart started to eat itself because there was nothing else left. So to say that she was skin and bones is an understatement. She was in the hospital because she was literally starving to death. But she saw herself fat. And there was so little to her that if she ate anything, she could feel the bump of the thing that she ate because there was so much of nothing that she then thought, oh, now I'm fat. And everyone else was like, no, you're starving to death, literally. But what she saw and what was were not connected. What we see is not based on what's out there, it's based on what's in here. And the problem is that we, we tend to believe whatever we see, even if what we see isn't real. And if we look in the wrong places, we see the wrong things. So in life, there's a whole bunch of different mirrors that we tend to look at that lie to us. And I'm looking at the time going, there's no way I'm going to make it through all the mirrors, but we'll make it through a few. I have 10 points and 11 and a half minutes. That ain't going to happen. Okay, so I have a mirror here. You can put up that uh, next one. You can, so you can see the picture that's in my mirror. This mirror that so many people go to is the mirror a comparison? See, you may be the person who looks at the guy on the left and you're like, I'm in way better shape than him because he can't get up. If you made it here, you are in better shape than him. And you can sit here and be haughty and arrogant and rude because, dude, I'm in so much better shape. Or you may be the person who sits in here and looks at the other guy and is like, there is no way on God's green earth that that's ever going to be me. I work out, I work out, and I work out, and that, that doesn't happen. And it's so easy to look at these and try to look at them to determine who I am. 
But the Bible says that those who classify or compare themselves with some of those and commend themselves based on how they compare themselves, as they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding or they are not wise. He goes, this, this life being lived by comparison is empty. And, but the church is actually known for it. Have you ever heard of the stereotype of judgmental Christians? Anyone ever heard of that stereotype before? If you haven't, there's a stereotype of judgmental Christians. And this is why. Because there's a bunch of people who find themselves somewhere in between the blob and the buff guy. And they go, you know what? If, if you see the buff guy, you might think that I'm weak and out of shape. But if I just point out everybody else's failures, if I just point out that somebody else is a blob, then maybe you won't notice my failures. Or maybe you'll think better of me if I can just put somebody else down. And they think that they can find their identity by knocking somebody else down. And this doesn't actually make you anything except for miserable to be and to be around. But it's a spot that so many people find themselves in when they get caught in this place of comparison. I'm going to go through a bunch of these really quick because otherwise I don't get to make it through them. Next, there's a bunch of people looking at their, their mirror going, what? I don't know if I got this one in there. Do you have the one with the medals? You have this one next? Yeah, there we go. What have I achieved? Have I achieved something? Because maybe if I could just achieve it, maybe if I had the medal around my neck, maybe then I'd be somebody. Maybe if I got that job. Maybe if I got those grades. Maybe if I got that girlfriend. Maybe if I had... And they get all of this, well, maybe if I could accomplish these things, then people would like me. Then, then I'd be somebody. And it's so easy to get caught in this. But the, this is a double-edged sword. Because if you have nothing, you think only if I had something, if I had achieved something. But if you achieve it all, the weight to try to continue to be something based on what you continue to achieve is enormous. Years ago, back when Jake was little, Pastor Jake was actually in my cabin in Montana a long, long time ago. But it was crazy. That year in my cabin, I had the most awesome athletic students and the rejects all in my cabin. It was a really interesting dynamic. And we sat down in a group. But what was really crazy is the guys who felt like they hadn't achieved anything and that they were rejected in school began to break down because they had no friends. Because they thought, I haven't achieved anything, so no one likes me. And those who seemed to have everything who won everything, who the whole school celebrated and looked to, begin to break down because of the pressure. Because the whole school was counting on them to win everything. And they looked, and it was this, this really interesting dynamic to see the people who 
didn't have it and the people who had it complaining about the same thing. Because whether we have the medal or don't have the medal, if we think that's what defines us, we find ourselves like a rat on a wheel. And no matter how fast you run, it doesn't matter. You don't go anywhere. And as I, as I look at this, it's so easy to think that if I win, I'm somebody, and if I lose, I'm nobody. But that's a lie. Having a loss doesn't make you a loser. Do you realize that God is not a loser? But Adam and Eve blew it. He lost his kids. Jesus was awesome, and he had Judas who betrayed him. But so often we look and go, but, but, I, but I failed. And we think that this defines us. And there's so many different places. But I want you to understand that who you are is not found in what you achieve. It's not found in what you have. It's not found in your past. Here, can you scroll through these with me? We're going to go through these like in 60 seconds because we got stuff to go through. It's not found in what you achieve. It's not found in what you have. Next one. Okay, that was me in 2004. Um, it's not found in your past. It's not found in your appearance. It's not found. Um, the ne this next one is a business card. Or no, we skipped the business card. Boom, there we go. It's not found in what you do. Next one. It's not found in your scars. It's not found in what happened to you. It's not found in those things, those traumatic events that may have occurred that seem to have marked you. That's not who you are. It's not found in what people say about you, in the words that have been spoken over you. Next one. It's not found in your relationships. It's not found in your sex. See, the, the, our, our culture so much right now wants to define people based on their sexual desires, based on their sexual exploits, and that's not who you are. You are who God says you are. But if you don't realize this, you end up bound you end up trying to figure out who you are. And God has a purpose and a plan for you. And if you're trying to prove who you are, you'll reject God's purpose and God's plan for your life because you're too busy trying to figure out and to prove who you are. See, in John, or, or Luke, uh, it's like in all the Gospels, but Jesus calls his disciples to go have dinner. But on their way to dinner, they're having an argument. It's like my kids. And the argument is, who's the greatest? Now, I have, I have three boys and a girl, and my boys can argue about anything. And everything is a competition. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, 
If it's getting in the car, everyone wants to be the first one in the car, first one out of the car. They can fight over it. There's like, you have to like call the rules out for getting in the car. You're like, there's no boxing out in the mudroom as you put on your shoes. You may not put your butt up against the door to hold everybody else in while you are putting on your shoes. You cannot punch them, hit them, kick them to beat them into the, into the car to sit longer. Well, anyways, it's dumb. But here's my, my, my point is we can fight, we can argue about anything. And if we think that winning defines us, we will make everything a competition. And it's not a friendly competition because it's not about entertaining each other with a game. It's about trying to become. And if my becoming is dependent on me beating you, then this isn't friendly. And I'll take it too far. Anyway, so, so as, as, I, as I'm looking at these guys and they're fighting going into this, somebody was supposed to wash everybody else's feet. Normally, this is a nasty job that a servant does because today, everybody's feet stink. That's just a thing. But back then, everybody's feet were nasty because they didn't have nice socks and tennis shoes. They had sandals. People didn't drive nice cars. They used donkeys. They used camels. Do you know what donkeys and camels do? They poo. So if the streets that you're walking on, now anyone ever been to Mackinac Island? There is a very odd aroma that fills that island. It's a mix of poop and fudge. <laughs> if you haven't been there, it's an experience. But in their day, there was a lot of animals and they would do their do wherever they just needed to do it. And then you're walking around in sandals. So when you came in, it was customary that the servant would wash your feet and get off any of that nastiness before you went and sat at the table. But when they came in, nobody wanted to be the servant. Because if you're arguing about who's the greatest, they're like, well, if I sit down with the bowl of water and start washing the crap off of somebody else's feet, I don't look like the important one here. And so like, the first guy comes in and he's like, mm, hey, me. It should be him. He's like, hey, me, I walked on water, thank you. I'm Jesus' favorite, he loves me. So, you know, like, you know, I can just like, see all the different characters as they're starting to like, make their case for who's the greatest. And then Jesus, and, and this, is, this is cool, Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and after that he poured water in a basin and began to washing the disciples' feet. This is, this is what's powerful. They're arguing, trying to figure out who they are so they are not able to serve. Jesus goes, I know who I am, and washing your feet doesn't change it. He knew who he was, so he was free. See, I am a competitive individual. And there has been times where it's been difficult for me to not win. So there's been times where I wrestled with friends where we hurt each other because neither of us wanted to give up. And so we broke things in the house, we smashed each other, cracked things, bent things, pulled things, and then needed to see a chiropractor because neither of, neither of us would give up because 
we thought that winning was becoming. I have four kids. When I wrestle with my kids, I often let them win. You know what? It doesn't hurt my ego to lose to a seven-year-old. He said, yeah, I beat daddy. I'm like, yeah, way to go, bud. And you're like, you're like, pin him. And you're like, I got you. And then you like, throw him on top of you. He's like, what just happened? Look, oh, you're pinning me. Because my ego is not on the line. And when I started thinking about that, I'm like, why is my ego on the line this other time? That's stupid. Oh, wait. That's called insecurity. That wasn't supposed to be there. But in our life, so often God's calling us and God goes, can I use you? And we're going, does it look cool? We're going, I, I, I don't know if I'm capable. And God goes, it doesn't matter, I am. Where you're not enough, God says, I am enough. But we're often looking going, um... I'm not sure what this mirror is telling me. God has a plan for you. And I want to read something over you. Because the one who defines you is the one who made you. The one who made you has the right to say, this is what you are and this is why you are. It's the perks of being the creator. And when we go to him, we can get set free. So I want to read to you a couple of things. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made on purpose, with purpose. God made you right. You aren't a mistake. You may not feel loved, but you are. Your value is priceless. Jesus placed your value more than the world. He deemed your worth worth laying down his life which is the greatest sacrifice of love because you are loved. You are forgiven. God doesn't see you through, the, through your mistakes. Jesus took your past mistakes upon him. He bore all your, your shame for you. You can be free from the past when you receive what God has for you. He says, you became a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Even if you have messed up since becoming a believer, he says that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants to be your loving father. For some, that's a strange thing that you don't know, but God cares and he wants to be there for you. You may not feel good enough, but that's okay because God is more than enough. He said he would never leave you or forsake you. In our weakness, he is strong. You were never called to do it on your own. If you trust in him and go to him, you can see him do what you could never do. His word says you're a child of God. You're adopted into God's family. He says he wants to be your friend he wants you to be justified. He bought you with a price. You've been redeemed and forgiven. You have a purpose. You're an overcomer. And you aren't alone. There's so much. And we could have spent the whole time just reading through a list of who you are in Christ. And it's this amazing thing. But here's the crazy part. Say that you get to be a friend of God. But to be a friend requires a choice. The Bible says that he stands at the door of your heart, knocking. 
Will you let me in? Will you let me be your friend? Will you let me be your savior? Will you let me pay the price that you could never pay? Will you let me define you? Will you let me direct you? The offer is open. For some of you guys, you go, that's right. And I accepted that offer. I am redeemed. I am forgiven. Who I am is not the sum of my accomplishments and failures. It's who God says I am. And others look and go, no, that, that, that I wish that were true. I need to know him. I want to give you an opportunity to make him your Lord right now. Can everyone bow their heads and close their eyes? If you're here and you say, today, I need to know that God. I need to receive his forgiveness. I want my creator. I want to receive that forgiveness. I want to know that I'm right with him. I'm in a relationship with him. I want my creator to define me. I want to live for him. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand when I count to three. One, this is your chance to respond to his knocking. Two, three. Raise up your hand and say, that's me. Awesome. Who else says, that's me? Who else? Another one over there. Who else says, that's me? The most important decision that anybody ever makes. Awesome. All right, you can put your hands down. We're going to say a simple prayer. The Bible says, whoever calls on his name will be saved. So that's what we're going to do. So go ahead and re repeat this with me. Say, God, thank you for loving me even when I make mistakes. I'm sorry for my sins. I believe that you died and rose again. I believe that your blood washed my sins away. I choose to live for you from this point forward. I declare that you are my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Give them a really big hand.